I got a bag of goodies. That's why I keep looking down. I'm just going to be a good sermon today. Would you pray with me? Man, isn't Jesus good? Isn't he worth worshiping? Uh, Father, we come before you and we are just so delighted to be in your presence. Thank you, Lord, that we can um, freely gather together and just worship you. Um, you are so worthy, God, to be worshiped and praised. No matter what we're going through, whether it's the mountaintop moment of our life or we feel like we're in the valley low with no hope, we know that you are with us and you never forsake us. You are the God who walks near to his people. And so we thank you, God, that we can come here together as, as your bride, as the body, as the church, and we can worship and we can open your word and we can study it and you can renew us and you can change our mind and you can encourage us. So I, Father, I pray anyone in this room who's low on hope, who's low on encouragement, who's low on faith, who feels like they're at the edge and, and they don't have much left in the tank to keep walking or running the race. Father, would you replenish them today? Would you use me as a simple servant to honor and glorify you today with the word? We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I love Jesus. He's good, right? He's just good. Have you ever, uh, or do you remember any rules growing up that you had that maybe you didn't fully understand why you had those rules in place? I was thinking about this question myself. I was thinking about rules that my parents had in place. And uh, I know some of you uh, grew up in Christian homes, right? Christian parents growing up. So you maybe had uh, different rules than if you grew up in a home that wasn't Christian. But I grew up in a home with two Christian parents, and sometimes I didn't understand why they had the rules in place that they had. One of the things that they had in place for us is, and this may be strange to you, but we weren't allowed to watch Harry Potter growing up. And... I always thought that was a little strange because I was like, what is this, like PG, PG-13? Why can't I not watch this film? And so I would ask my parents, and they'd give me some reason that I would forget, but I wasn't allowed to, we weren't as a family allowed to read those books, and they didn't like that there was witches and things like that, but I didn't fully understand why I wasn't allowed to read the books or watch the movies. I wasn't going to read the books. Those are too thick. Years later for Christmas, me and my brother got the Harry Potter films and we watched like all of them in one day. We're like, this is what we were missing. <laughs> one of the other rules that um, my parents put in place that we didn't totally understand, but it was like, okay, this is the rules of the house, was that on Saturday, we could load up on Sugar Seal. Full bowl, cartoons, here we go. But on Sunday, we only were allowed to get a sprinkle of sugar cereal. So that made Sunday extra special in the morning. But for whatever reason, I don't know if you're home, they let you have sugar cereal every day. Praise God for you and your parents. 
For us, it was only on Saturday and on Sunday. And so there's tricks to this. You know, you learn, this is what I learned. I'll put more sugar cereal on the bottom, cover it up with the Cheerios and then sprinkle it on top, right? To look like I'm just kind of going light on it. But I just didn't understand this. As a kid, you're like, why can't I eat sugar cereal and sugar smacks and Lucky Charms and Fruit Loops and Cocoa Puffs every single day of the week? And uh, the other th- rule that I was thinking about, I was thinking about some rules is we weren't allowed to sleep over at many people's houses. And I know some of you guys have that rule in place right now in your families. Um, we, there was like, I was allowed at my cousin's house to sleep over and like one of our close pastoral friends, we were super close with them, but those were the two homes. So if I went over to a friend's house, we would stay there till late. And then I'd be the one kid to be like, sorry guys, can't play sock and boppers with you. I got to put my bag on and head home. And as a kid, I didn't always understand this. You know, I thought everybody else is doing it. Everybody else stays over. All my friends have cocoa puffs every day of the week, and I only get Saturday and a sprinkle on Sunday. Everybody, you know, they're allowed to, you know, watch Harry Potter and enjoy it, and I don't know what they're talking about, so I got to change the subject. And as you grow older, and some of you as parents now kind of understand some of the decisions that your parents made, or maybe you still don't, But as you grow older and you kind of look back at how you were raised and you think about how you're going to raise your own, you start to reflect on some of the principles and some of the motive behind what your parents had instituted. Your parents, at least my parents, didn't put rules in place simply to have rules. They put rules in place because there was a heart behind it to either protect me and my siblings, either to provide for us or either to teach us something. There was a heart and a motive behind the rules that I now see clearly. Today, we're talking about the Ten Commandments. We're starting a new series. And I was talking to one of the pastors. He said, I bet you that people can quote or say more beer companies or names of beer cans, then they probably could name the amount of uh, uh, Ten Commandments. And it's probably true for the common American is that most of us don't know or couldn't recite all Ten of the Commandments. And when we hear about it, there's different thoughts that go through our mind. And we may ask ourselves, well, what's the meaning of those rules? Do they have any relevance or importance to today? Or can we just kind of throw those away? Can we kind of push that aside? Can we kind of skip over that portion? Is there any importance to those rules that we see in the Old Testament? Let me read you a couple of them. Let me read you all 10 of them. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Two, you shall make no idols. Three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Four, keep the Sabbath day holy. Five, honor your father and your mother. Parents say amen. Six, you shall not murder. Seven, you shall not commit adultery. Eight, you shall not steal. Nine, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And 10, you shall not covet. 
And today I want to dive into is we're going to go overarching, big picture. We're going to, I'm going to teach you a lot of the word today, a lot of scripture, and a lot of the overarching story to the Old Testament. But the big point today is not just what was God teaching us not to do, but what was God teaching us to do? How does he want us to live? And most importantly, what does the Ten Commandments say about the character and the nature of God? Are you ready? Okay, well, let's wrap it up then. Are you ready? Okay. There it is. We'll go an hour and 10 minutes today. In Genesis chapter 3, we see the first account of Jesus in the Bible. You may not know it. It's not referenced by the name of Jesus. But in Genesis chapter 3, we see the first mark of anywhere in Scripture early on, uh, thousands of years before Jesus has ever, ever comes in flesh, we see uh, the prophecy of the Messiah. Genesis chapter 3. So the Lord said to the serpent, this is Adam and Eve had eaten the fruit, they've sinned, God comes, and now he's cursing the serpent, he curses the woman, and he curses man. This is the curse to the serpent. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, capital S. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, as I read that, you probably don't understand all that that's saying, but God, after the fall of man, is cursing the serpent. And what's important for you to know is that when God says, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. When he says her seed, that right there, seed, capital S, is the first mark that we see that's referring to, in the future, a Messiah figure, Jesus, who will come and be the solution to the problem of brokenness and sin in our world. Bruised the heel. Satan bruises the heel of Jesus on the cross. Bruising suggests something that's not ultimate or final. Christ died on our behalf, being made sin for us. He bore our judgment upon the cross, but... The damage was not final because Jesus rose again after three days. It says, in between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head. Jesus shall bruise the head of Satan and Satan's power, and you shall bruise his heel. He bruised the heel of Jesus, not a final blow, but a temporary blow, to Jesus on the cross, led by the will of God. Um, but it was not final. Jesus rose after, after, uh, after three days, and the seed of the woman, Jesus, will crush the head of the serpent, indicating Satan's ultimate defeat. And there's different aspects of this. The first defeat of Satan was done on the cross by the power of Jesus. 
I'm revving you up a little bit here to understand that all the way back in the earliest parts of your Bible, Genesis chapter 3, God had already, before, before Adam and Eve had ever sinned, God had already a plan for redemption. And we see that in the earliest chapters of the Bible, we see that God already had a plan to send Jesus to be the solution to our brokenness. Years go by, generations, and your favorite part of the Bible that you read is the genealogies that I know you just skip over. And it's important, though, that you read those genealogies, but we move the story forward from Genesis chapter 3 to Genesis chapter 12. And in Genesis chapter 12, we encounter a man named Abram. Abram. And God calls Abram out, and he says this. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the people on earth will be blessed through you. Teaching you a little bit of theology, a little bit, we're going a little scholarly this morning. That right there is called the Abrahamic covenant. It's a covenant that God makes with Abram, or he's later called Abraham. God makes this covenant with Abram, and he promises him three different things. The first thing that you heard is he promises him offspring, because I will make you into a great nation. This is quite interesting because Abraham is 75 years old, and he has no children yet. And God is promising him I will make you into a great nation. Can I tell you something? Abram slash Abraham doesn't have that promise fulfilled till he's 100 years old. And I want to encourage you this morning, if you have a promise in scripture that you're holding on to or something that God has communicated to you, a dream that he's put, can I tell you, if it's from God, God is faithful to complete and holds true to his promises at all times, at all places. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It is against God's nature and character for him not to be faithful or true to his promises. So just because you haven't seen a promise answered yet that's in Scripture, all I would say is, hold on. Abraham waited 25 years to see his promise, but didn't waver in his faith, and God used him in powerful ways. God always delivers. Let me pick up the pace. Abraham has promised three things. His offspring, he's 75 and has no kids. Number two, he's promised the land, the land, a certain geographical uh, uh, land that's promised to Abram and his descendants. If you want to really read into that, you're super curious. Genesis 15 goes into the specific dimensions of what God was called, what, what the land that God gave to Abraham and his descendants. The third thing is the final verse, the blessing that Abram and his descendants from his family, from his descendants, would come a blessing that would bless the entire world. Let me give you a sneak peek. Let me give you the uh, spoiler alert. That blessing is Jesus. Jesus is born hundreds of years later down the road. He's born from the lineage and the genealogy of Abraham. 
And it all starts, and we see this all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham, at 100, has a son, Isaac. Isaac lives a great life. You can read about him in Genesis. Isaac has a son, Jacob. Jacob, his name meant deceiver. And he stole the birthright from his, his brother Esau. And we see later on in Jacob's life, there's a lot of tension between him and his brother Esau. Skip forward. And there's a moment, pivotal, life-changing, life-transforming moment where God, in Genesis 32, wrestles with Jacob, and he's wrestling with Jacob all throughout the night. Jacob doesn't know that this is God. God says, hey, good fight, I'm done. Taps Jacob's hip, his hip goes out. He's on the ground crawling, wrestling, holding on to God's ankle. And God says, let go, day, let go. He says, I will not let go until you bless me. I will not let go until you bless me. And God, God renames him there at that moment. And we see this in Genesis 32. Let me read it from scripture. Genesis 32, 28. Then the man, God, said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Israel means one who struggles with God. Some translations say one who struggles with God and overcome. Jacob, whose new name is Israel, I'm giving you high picture here, whose new name is Israel, goes on and has some descendants. One of his descendants is someone you'll know, famous in the Bible, a man named Joseph, right, who has a lot of brothers and his famous stories because he had a colorful robe or clothing. And Joseph is sold into slavery in Egypt by his brothers. And once he's sold into slavery, God divinely raises him up through going to prison, raises him up to be the second most powerful man in the most powerful nation at that time, Egypt. Hundreds, there's a famine that goes on. You know the story. His brothers come back into the land. His brothers, they don't know it's him. There's a forgiveness story. It's amazing. Watch Prince of Egypt. Loved it. Carolina's favorite film growing up. And he's in there. Pharaoh says, move your family, the Israelites, into Egypt. And they're all in Egypt. Big happy story. Until a hundred, hundreds of years go down the road. A couple hundred years pass by. And the Israelites who are living peacefully in Egypt walk into a situation where they're now enslaved in Egypt. Or you know the story of Moses. He was raised in Egypt, and he was sent out, and he was brought back, and God says, I want you to free the Israelites from Egypt. Funny enough, this is predicted and prophesied, given to Abraham all the way back uh, early on in Genesis chapter 12, and he's told that his people, his, his descendants will, be, will suffer in the land of Egypt hundreds of years before Joseph is there. And so he's there in the land, 
The people, Joseph's dead. Moses is there to set the Israelites free. He sets them free. The 10 plagues, God does miraculous things. They cross the, they cross the river. And we come to a point here in the story where God has worked miraculous things, chosen the Israelites. They're people who are his people, but they've been in slavery for 400 years. And they have to learn how to live like free people. They have to learn how to be God's people. And so we take all that long journey to get to this point where we're at the Ten Commandments. And Moses comes down with these Ten Commandments where God's own finger has written in stone these Ten Commandments, these Ten Laws, these Ten Things for the people of Israel to remember, to live by, to transform the way they speak, to transform the way they act, to transform the way they live, to transform the way that they deal with every aspect of their life. And I want you... And we've seen the summary, we've sat in the summary, we see the story arc. Oftentimes we just read one or two verses and we don't see the grand scheme of what God is doing. And it's important to take a step back to see how God can work a promise from Genesis chapter 3 to Genesis chapter 12, seal it unconditionally in Genesis chapter 17, change, is, uh, change Jacob's name to Israel in Genesis chapter 32, and move us forward chapter by chapter by chapter, hundreds of years till we arrive in Exodus, all the way the Israelites have been freed, and we are now in Exodus chapter 20. And God is giving the Israelites his 10 commandments. I'm going to give you three pictures. Very quickly, we'll go through this. And they're very simple pictures of understanding how the commandments, the 10 commandments, an image to help you understand how the 10 commandments functioned for the Israelites and how this guided and led them. Here's the first picture. The 10 commandments are a map. It's a guide, guiding the way that we live. How many of you in the room have used one of these before to travel somewhere? Raise your hand. How many of you young people have never seen one of these before? Carolina was buying this in Walmart and she said nobody knew where it was. She's like, people don't buy those anymore. This is the old version of what we use now. Nowadays, we use on our phones. If you're going somewhere, you do a couple clicks and you pull up Google Maps or Waze if you're trying to avoid the police. <laughs> Confess it after. We'll talk after. We'll talk after. <laughs> and we use this. And I was using this yesterday, and it's a very helpful tool because I was going downtown to meet a friend for a game night, and we used this to be able to get us exactly to where we wanted to. This was a guide and a tool for me to get and my friend to get to the place that we needed to get. This is a helpful tool. If I don't have this, it's much easier to get lost. And God knew that his people that he had called and he had you know, given this promise to, he knew that they would be lost coming out of the land of Egypt. They had been in a secular culture. They had been around a lot of foreign gods, a lot of wrong ways of living. And God was saying, I'm pulling you out of that, guys. And I'm, I'm, I want you to live in a way that's going to reflect my heart. 
I'm giving you these 10 commandments, but behind every one of those commandments, just like I was saying with those rules my parents gave me, there's motives and there's a heart behind it and a principle that shows the character of God. For instance, do not commit adultery is not just about not sleeping with other people in a sexual type of way. It's about the principle of being faithful. God's saying, I'm faithful, and I want you to be faithful. Do not lie is not just about, you know, not lying and, you know, not saying things that aren't true. It's about the opposite. God's saying, don't do that because I want you to be truthful. I want you to be honest with people around you. I don't want you to spin a web of lies and have to remember all those things you said to kind of build a whole narrative. I want you to be truthful because I am the truth. See, God was trying to help his people understand there's a way of living when you're in a relationship with me. And he starts off the Ten Commandments by really giving us a relational statement. He says, Exodus 20 Verse two says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Before he gives them, do not covet, do not lie, do not steal. He says this, hey, I'm the one. I'm the one that even before you were born, who claimed you as his. Way back there, before you were born, I chose Abraham to have a nation out of. And I don't forget my promises. Listen to what Deuteronomy has to say. Deuteronomy says it better than I could say. Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 9. The Lord did not set his affection on Israel and choose you because you were more numerous than other people. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord, this is Old Testament, because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery. From the power of the Pharaoh king of Egypt, know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is faithful. He is the faithful God keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his command. God had chosen a people that were going to be his own, set apart, holy, distinct. And he loved them so much that he said, I want you to live the life. The life that's different than everybody else, the life that is only found in me and in living in my ways, the right way of living, not lying, not cheating, not stealing, not sleeping around, but living in purity and faithfulness and truth and righteousness and grace and mercy. That's the way I've called you to live. And you say, well, why though? Just because you love? No, not just only because you love, but God says in Leviticus 19 too, the Lord said to Moses, speak to all of Israel and say, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. God's, you say, you say, listen, 
Why did the Israelites have to live different? God was saying, because you are different. All those other nations, they can choose to live the way that they want to, but they're not mine. You're mine. And because I chose you and because I love you, I cannot see you live that way. I need you to live in a way that will spring up life and will be healthy and will be good because you're mine and I can't bear for you to live that way. So I'm going to give you 10 simple rules and principles so that you can reflect me. You can show me. You can live like me. You can be like me because I love you. You're my people. I'm in a relationship with you. And that's what you do when you love. You protect. You teach. You guide. You walk with people. You're my people. And because I'm holy, I want you to be holy. God's saying, in other words, holiness is because I'm set apart, because I'm different, because I'm not like the rest, you need to not be like the rest. And I think that this is so practical and helpful and healthy for us to hear. Because I think we, even in our modern day, struggle with getting caught up with living like everybody else does. You know, when you're a Christian, you come out of some other lifestyle, some other way you used to live that was acceptable, and you did that for your years, and you enjoyed that. But, you know, when you become a Christian, it's not just about accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior and the blood over you, but coming to Jesus also means repentance. Repentance means leaving the old things behind, turning away from the old ways you used to live, If you weren't faithful, now you're faithful. If you used to lie, now you're truthful. And this is part of living the life that God has called you. You reject those things, leave those things behind, and live the life that God has called you to live. Listen. Listen to how God clarifies this and says, Moses, tell this to the people. Leviticus 18, 1 through 5. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites And say to them, I am the Lord, your God. Listen to this. Come on. Hear this truth. God is saying, you're my people. I love you. I want you to live in the right way. He says this. You must not do as they do in Egypt. Don't live the way that you used to live. Those old cultural things. You say, well, I grew up this way. No, no, no. That's okay. But you got to leave some of that stuff behind. He said, where you used to live And you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, in the land that you're going to. So don't take on the culture of the place you went to and the practices and the lifestyle. And don't take it of the place that you're going to. Both of those are wrong for you. I have something different. He's saying, where I am bringing you, do not follow their practices. Instead, you must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord, your God. He's saying, Christians, hear me clearly today. Listen, I know people say, uh, you know, America's a, a Christian nation or was founded on Christian roots. I, I, I hear you. But let me say this. We live in an incredibly secular culture where different things are being shoveled over to you like their truth. 
different lifestyles are being handed over to you and pushed onto your table like they should be accepted, different ways of living that are wrong at your workplaces, at your house. Things are just like, well, everybody cheats, so this is what we can do. Everybody steals time at work, so we should just steal. And, and that's how the majority of the, of the world lives, is just what can I get away with? What can I do? My truth is my truth. I live how I want to. Don't tell me what's right or what's wrong. And, and that's okay for them. And that was okay for you too before you knew Jesus. But now that you know Jesus, to be a follower of Jesus means to follow and live out his commands. To be a follower of Jesus is not just to claim that you're a Christian, but it's to show it with the fruit of your life. I was, um, the closest grocery store to our place is Mariano, so we were in line and we we're getting our order. We're finally eating healthy, no more gushers and monsters and soda and just pop tarts and like a 13 year old diet. No more. And we, we got in line and there's this, uh, older woman who was bagging. So they're doing our, you know, doing our groceries. And then there's an older lady who's bagging things. And she's just like, she's just like, is beaming. She's just so happy. She's, she says, Oh, I hope you have a blessed. I hope you're having a blessed day today. And right away, my Christian radar is like, beep, 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 like, fellow believer, fellow believer. People don't just use the word blessed, right? And so, and I'm, I'm just, you know, I, I, go, I, see, I go to different workplaces and I see different people. So a lot of people are just like, you know, I, I mean, they're just looking at their clock, just cannot wait. Boss comes, then they start mopping the floor, but he walks away, they're like dragging the thing. I see people all the time, even just at like Mariano's, just like bagging things, like just putting too many things in the bag, just rip open. They just don't care. People don't care. But I was watching this woman outpace the 20-year-olds that are next to her, just bagging these things, but bagging these things. And I was just like, wow, I was impressed. And I was watching her. And I saw a difference in the way that she was acting compared to the people that were an aisle over and an aisle over here. And I talked with her for a little bit afterwards. And I, I, was, I walked away from that experience. I was talking to Carolina in the car. And I said, you know what? That's how Christians should be known. They should be in their, we should, as Christians, no matter if you hate your boss, can't stay in your workplace, don't like the work you do, too long of hours, to this, we should be the hardest working people that do the most excellent work, that complain the least amount of times, matter if we like the work or we don't like the work, because what scripture says is we're doing it for God and we're different than the rest. If the person's lazy next to me, it doesn't mean I have to be lazy. If the person's stealing, doesn't mean I need to be stealing. If the person's lying, doesn't mean I need to be lying. And honestly, I should be known by the fruit of my life that my coworker should look at the way I live and should say, why are you so different? And we just say, because he is. Why are you so different? Because he is. You ever been in an environment as a Christian, someone makes a joke to you, it's like, yeah, I'm trying to get some from my girl on the side too. And I'm like, don't, don't nudge me on that, bro. I'm not, I'm not with you. I'm, I'm faithful to my woman. Don't, don't nudge me. No, I'm not in that camp with you. Uh -uh, mm -mm, mm. I've been at secular workplace, like the boss man can't stand him. Right. He's like, I'm like, no, like I'm you, you, you're in your camp of your own. Like you're over there. I'm not, I don't want to be in that same camp with you because I'm not living like you. I'm living like Jesus. I'm from a different cloth, right? We're cut different. Come on, fam. 
Not only is it a map, but it's a muzzle. And I looked for a muzzle and none of the stores sell muzzles. So just imagine a muzzle. <laughs> the Ten Commandments are a muzzle restraining us from doing wrong. You know, when we put a muzzle, you go over to somebody's home and there's a dog there, there's an animal there that's kind of out of control. We put a muzzle on it because we want to make sure that it doesn't bite somebody else, right? We want to make sure that it doesn't bite anybody else and that it's, you know, we protect people that are coming over to our house or if we're going over to somebody else's house. And, and scripture, um, the Ten Commandments specifically, they function a little bit like a muzzle. Let me explain it. It protects us from doing harm to anyone because of our sin, but it also protects others from being harmed because of our sin. Listen to Exodus 20, 20, because it explains it better than I could. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you. So he has literally just given them the Ten Commandments, which is a, a I think it's kind of funny, too. He comes down the mountain, it's, you know, depending on how you look at it, and he's got these Ten Commandments, God's written on these in stone, and he comes there and he sees them living in pagan worship. They're worshiping a calf. He takes these and throws them and they break. And as me, as the reader, I'm thinking, dude, God wrote those. You threw them? I mean, think about that for a second. You throw them and then you got to walk back up the mountain and say, God, will you write those again for me on stone? And that's what happens. There he goes down the mountain, amazing moment with God. He goes down the mountain and, and, and they see that he throws these things. He rebukes and they're like, they're shook. And Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of God may be before you that you may not sin, that you may not sin. I had a bunch of friends in high school who would like, you know, they were dabbing each other up and like pounding fists if their parents were out on the weekend. Mom and dad aren't, you know, they're supposed to be out Friday night. You know, we're going to have a party, bring everybody over. But let me say this. Smart parents didn't tell their kids when they were coming home. They said, I'll be out maybe back in an hour, maybe back in four hours. Be prepared. And when you put a little bit of fear in your kid, like you may come through the door and just like a SWAT member and kick down the door and say, I got you. You know what? Your kids are a lot more reluctant to go and just kind of throw a party at the house if they, if they know that you may come back at any moment. You know, a little bit of fear in your kids. I'm glad that they, they know that you love them, but it's not a bad thing to have a little bit of fear. It's not a bad thing to have a little reverence. It's not a bad thing to have a little bit of respect for somebody that's over you, whether that's your parent, right, or that's God. And what he, you, could, you could applaud that. Some of you are like applauding it, looking at your kid. Listen. And that's ultimately what Exodus 20 is saying, that the Israelites had fear, a, a healthy, righteous fear in their life of God. Because they knew that God was watching all of their actions. They knew that God had called them to live a certain way and that God was watching everything they did, everything they said, that God had taken them out of Egypt, that God deals with sin severely, that there is always consequences in our life for sin. Let me say that again. There are always 
consequences in our life for sin. You may not experience that in the moment, but nobody ever walks away from their sin. There's always consequences. You may not get caught in the moment. There is always consequences for our sin. Your spouse may not know, but God does. And there was a healthy, righteous fear that the Israelites had, and it kept them away from sin. Just like a muzzle keeps a dog from biting, the law helped to be that muzzle in the Israelites' life to help them from doing things that they were not called to do. So it was helpful in that fact. But let me say this, and a lot of this message is adopted, I forgot to say that, from Riken, this incredible, uh, he's president of Wheaton right now. He said it so amazing. Listen to what he says. He said, the law doesn't keep people from sinning entirely because it cannot change our sinful nature. The law is helpful, but just like a muzzle on a dog, just because you have a muzzle on a dog doesn't mean you've changed the nature of a dog. You take that muzzle off the dog, the ferocious dog comes back out. You just had a muzzle on it. It was a temporary solution. It was a temporary fix. You just had a muzzle on. It didn't solve the problem of you having a dog that was out of control. And let me tell you this, each and every one of us, if you, before you know Jesus, has a dog inside of you that is out of control. You have a dog, the flesh that's inside of you that wants to live your way, do your thing, live however, please yourself in whatever way, as much as you want, you know, take as much for yourself, not think about any other people. All of us have a nature and a heart inside of us like that. And that's the problem. You show us the laws and it's good, but we do not have power in ourselves to complete and fulfill these laws in our own, in our own nature, in our own power. We need the root of the problem solved. We need a heart change. We need a heart transplant. We need what Jeremiah talks about, a new heart. Where it's not about listing out what to do or what not to do, but God has so changed our nature that regardless if it was written out, do not commit adultery, God has so changed the nature of who we are that we want to be faithful. We don't want to cheat. That God has so changed the nature of who we are that we don't want to lie even when we can get away with things because we're in a relationship with God and we want to speak truth because God speaks truth. When we're in a relationship with God, we don't want to live like that the old ways, even if we can get away with it. It's not about getting away with it. It's about living a life that's pleasing unto God. And the ultimate solution, we see this in Galatians 3.19. Tell me if you recognize a word here. Galatians 3.19 says, why then was the law given? If the law is not the final solution, if it doesn't solve the whole problem, why was the law? Why did God give it to us? And it says this, it was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred to had come. The word seed in Galatians all the way in the New Testament is used all the way in Genesis chapter three. The seed 
will crush the head of the serpent is talking about the same thing. The solution to our broken, faulty hearts and nature is Jesus. Jesus is the solution to our lives and our brokenness. Jesus is the solution to our lack of self-control. Jesus is the solution to our lack of faithfulness. Jesus is the solution to our lying lips. Jesus is the solution to our envious heart. Jesus is the solution to our lustful mind. Jesus is the solution to our brokenness. It cannot be solved by religious rules. It's solved by a relationship with God. We need the law, but the law doesn't fix the problem because it doesn't fix us. The inability to perfectly keep the Ten Commandments leads us to the realization and need for Jesus. And that's part of the reason why people don't turn to Jesus unless they realize their brokenness. You will never turn to the doctor unless you realize that you're sick. You will never turn to the healer unless you realize that you're hurt. You will never go to the one that can give you new life if you don't realize that you're dead without him. And only in Jesus is the ultimate problem of our heart solved, our brokenness and despair the part of ourselves that we can't believe that we would do that to people that we love and that we care about. The only solution to that is not putting a, lo- a list of rules on your fridge and your car, places that you can remember, remember them. The only solution in change is the transforming power of Jesus who takes our old corrupted heart and makes us new in him, new creation so that we can live out, not out of rules, but live out of a new nature and out of the new covenant. And I leave you with this final picture of the third thing that it explains to us. It's this. It's really simple, but so important. Is It says that, talks about the third picture is the ten laws, the, the Old Testament commandments are like a mirror. They're like a mirror. And let me say this, being married, I've learned a lot about the secrets that women have been holding from guys for years. No, it's out. I've been using this little thing and you're plucking this, plucking that. And you're like, okay, yeah, you know, my hair's off. I'm going to fix this, fix that, you know. And then I saw Carolina one day and she had a magnified mirror that had lights on it. And I looked in that thing and I said, what is wrong with my face? What is that thing? I have never seen that before. That's there. People can see that every week. And I realized when I looked in this mirror, I realized, wow, I can really, especially when you have it magnified, you really see all the little imperfections that you do not see in normal mirrors. Guys, Use your wife's mirror. And scripture says that that's 
part of what the Ten Commandments helps us do. When we look at and read the different commandments, you shall have no other gods before me, right? Don't put anything before God. Keep you know, the Sabbath day holy, continue rest and trust him. You shall not commit adultery, don't cheat. And Jesus goes even further in the New Testament, right? If you even look at a woman lustfully, he says in the New Testament, you've committed adultery. You shall not steal, we should steal. You should not covet, you shall not bear false witness. There's just lying. And I don't know about you, but when, when I come to the Ten Commandments and I just read those, it shows me, just like a mirror does, those little imperfections that you didn't see when you look into the Word, when you look into the Scripture and you see how God has called you to live and you look at your life. I don't know about you, but I, a lot of, I see a lot of things in the mirror that don't look like Jesus. I shine it on certain areas of my life. I'm like, oh man, I, I don't have the love that I need in that area. Sometimes, you know what? When you're a Christian and you're not living the right way, you know what happens next? You stop reading the Bible. You know why? Because this becomes really uncomfortable when you're not living right. When you're not living right, you, you, people say, I stopped going to church. Why do you stop going? It's, it's a natural progression because who wants to be in an environment where we're, we're showing the reflection, say there's areas in your life that you need to work on because God doesn't stop with us. He continues the work on the unfinished project that we are. And part of the way he shows us things in our life that we need to work on is he brings the mirror of scripture, the 10 commandments for, for the Israelites. And he shows him, he says, listen, you got to look at the, your life and we don't like looking at it, but there, it's healthy to look in it, to look at yourself seriously right in the mirror and allow scripture to show show you the areas in your life where you fall short and I fall short because it shows you and points you to the need of Jesus in our life. Don't compare yourself to the person next to you or your neighbor. That's a bad comparison. Compare yourself to Jesus and look in the mirror and see the areas that you and I fall short because that's the only way that you become more like him. Amen. And I finish with this verse. Galatians 3.24 says this. So the law, and I'm not going to go into all this, but so for the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. The law had its purpose and its place. It's important. It's God's truth. But you and I could never fully even live the Ten Commandments, let alone the other 600 laws in the Old Testament. We couldn't do it. I can't do it. There's times I blow it. And each and every single person in this room has blown it multiple, multiple times with me. We've blown it. And I look at that list, I look at the mirror, and, and I say, it, it doesn't make me go, how can, I, how can I just make myself better? I go, Jesus, you need to change me. Because there's things that even as a Christian for so many years, when I look into your scripture, there's things that I still wrestle with. There's areas of forgiving people that I still wrestle with. There's things in my heart that I still wrestle with, and I need you to change me. I'll look in the mirror, but would you change me? Because I can't do it in my own power. I can't live the way you want to in my own power. I can't forgive or live in purity or not lie or this in my own power. I need you to change my heart and by the power of your Holy Spirit, 
Empower me to live the life you've called me to. Would you stand with me? And I'm going to read the Ten Commandments. I'm going to open up this altar for a moment. And I want you to take a moment right before we sing. And I want you to just look in this mirror as a symbol. Just want you to look in this mirror as a symbol. The magical mirror from my bathroom. I want you to look in this mirror as a symbol of the Word of God. Reflecting to you, reflecting to you the areas in your life that need to be transformed by Jesus. So you look in this mirror. I want you to look in it. I want you to look in the mirror. And I want you to say, God, what are the areas I need to work on in my life? Take a moment, just look at it. Just be honest. Just pray. I want you to pray to God. Say, God, the mirror of your law, the mirror of your scripture, what are the areas in my life that need to be transformed by your power? I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid to look in the mirror, but I need you to change that area in my heart. And as you're praying right now, before I open the altar, I want to read the Ten Commandments one more time so you can hear them and inspect your life. And at the bare minimum, it makes you more desperate for Jesus than praise God. But if there's something in your life that when I read it, God's spirit just highlights it. It's the mirror upon your life and your actions and your marriage and the way you speak and the way that you're generous and the way that you conduct yourself and the way that you live your life. And there's, there's something that in reading this scripture, you just hear it. I want you to hold it in you and I'm going to invite you forward at the end. But I want you to hear his scripture and let him speak to you. Look in the mirror. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. It says, keep the Sabbath day holy. Rest. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor lying. And you shall not covet. As God's word has been proclaimed, and you've taken a moment to look at your imperfect life just as I look at my imperfect life. When the worship team starts to sing right now, if you need to come forward and get on your knees and say, God, help me. Because I have seen something that needs to change. And I am ashamed, but I'm coming to you.
then I want you to walk out of the aisle. I want you to say, excuse me, walk forward. I want you to come down and I want you to kneel before the King of all kings, the holy God. And I want you to get down on your knees and say, God, forgive me for falling short and change me. I commit to live in this area the way that you've called me to. And so if that's you right now, I want you to boldly, if you know God is speaking, do not hesitate. Do not pause. I want you to step out of the aisle. You don't have to tell anybody what one you're coming up for. I want you to step out, step out of your row. I want you to come forward. I want you to kneel down before God and just say, God, forgive me because I have fallen short in an area you've called me to. And we're going to sing, but take a moment to get yourself right and bring yourself before God. Yes, Jesus. Oh, Lord Jesus, we come before you. We've blown it. Even as Christians, we've blown it. We've fallen short. We haven't been faithful in some of the small things and some of the big things. Some people need to come forward for cheating on somebody. They have no idea. They're standing next to you and you need to come forward. You don't need to tell them right now, but you need to come forward and deal with it before God right now. You need to say, God, I need to stop that. Some of you in this room right now, you can't tell the difference between a lie and a truth. Lying has become your native tongue. And you need to come forward and say, God, help me speak truth. Help me be honest. Even when it's a penalty and it hurts, that it costs me, I want to be honest and truthful. Some of you are looking at everybody else around you and you have envy in your heart. You have so much envy in your life. You envy other people's relationships and their lives and what they're doing and where they're working and the vacations they go on. And you need to come forward and say, God, let me be thankful for what you've given me, God. Help me not envy. I want to live for you. Some of you in the room have idols that you've put before God, things that are more important, your job, money, it's the goal of your life. It's the thing you wake up in the morning for. It's the thing you'll think about during the service and after. And you need to come forward and say, God, let me put you first again. You're sleeping with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. You need to come forward and say, God, I will not live a lustful life anymore, God. Let's sing.